Thanks, Karen. I'm Shelly Davis, and I can't tell you what a privilege and a joy it is to be with each of you this morning. I've so loved the first two big sections of our study, and I'm looking forward to taking a closer look at living as a wiser church with each one of you. I talked with Deb this morning, and she has this great idea that in order to continue to encourage everyone to come this spring, because we do have this week and three more weeks after this, we're not done yet, even though spring is so busy and we all have so many things to do, that she thinks we need fresh flowers on all the tables. Now, I'm going to debate fresh flowers versus chocolate with her, because I'm thinking... (laughs) I don't know, maybe chocolate, and who knows, maybe we'll do uh, fresh flowers and chocolate so that we all get uh, what we need. But I do, I sincerely appreciate and love the fact that you're all here this morning, and I want you to know that there is absolutely no place on this earth I would rather be this morning than with you. Now, I might pick heaven over this, but if I have to be on this earth, it's here with you. Our study of wisdom in the last 12 weeks has taken us from looking at how we live as wise women, trusting the heart of God and having an eternal perspective, not just an earthly perspective, but an eternal perspective. How we go from there to looking at how we live as wise disciples. We did that for seven weeks with Lynn. It was a great study, and we discovered what it means to be a wise disciple is to love as Jesus loves and to let go of... um, Uh, the law that the nation of Israel had been under, but really to accept God's grace and to model the life that Christ modeled for us. And now we're going to explore in the next four weeks what it looks like to live as a wise church. And it really is a fitting way, I think, to wrap up our study of wisdom, to kind of tie the bow on the package, you might say, because I think that wise women should become wise disciples. And if you're a wise disciple, then you're going to find yourself in a wise church. And that's going to be your goal as a wise disciple, is to not only discover for your own heart what a wise church looks like, but then to seek out one and be a part of a wise church. When I was a little girl, my Dad, unfortunately, only had little girls. He didn't have sons, and he was a great outdoorsman. And when I was a little girl, I spent a lot of time fishing with him. And one of the things he loved to do most was to take our little bitty aluminum boat to, I think it was the dam at Possum Kingdom. And we would put the boat in just below the dam at Possum Kingdom, and we would do what he called float the Brazos River. And he would throw us girls in the boat and the few bologna sandwiches and some fishing tackle, and we would take off down the Brazos River. Now, when you went in the spring, it looked different from when you went in the fall because the foliage changed and the river water would be um, up or down and there would be sandbars in different places. But along the way of the Brazos River, there were always these big rock formations. And one of them I still remember, in fact, I think one of these days I'm going to have to go back and see if it's still there. It was this huge, massive square rock, which is what he called it, square rock, and it was two stories high, flat on the top. And when you got to square rock in the boat, then there was a great catfish hole there, and so you stopped and and fished for catfish for a little while, and there was a sandbar where we'd drag the boat up and eat our bologna sandwiches, and if it was warm, we'd 
play in the water. Then when you got back in the boat and went down a little further, there was another big rock formation and it had a ledge. And if we were going to spend the night on the river, then that was where you did it because you were about two-thirds of the way. Well, as I said, the river looked different, spring and fall. So it was these huge rock formations that helped my dad navigate and make decisions about what we were going to do and where we were going to go along the way. We've got some huge rocks, some big rocks in Scripture that we can use to navigate down the river as we discover what a wise church looks like. And these big rocks are not going to change according to fall or spring or whether you're young or old or whether you live in this town or that town. And so we're going to look at four big rocks today that are going to help all of us discern what living as a wise church looks like. They're on your outline. And our first big rock that we're going to take hold of is a wise church understands that it's about the people, not the building. Now, the church that we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks, church is really the central purpose of God in the present age, and it's a New Testament revelation. In the Old Testament, God's purpose and favor rested on the nation and the people of Israel. But the New Testament tells us a a, a new thing, a new revelation, and it reveals the church formed of both Jews and of Gentiles called out of the world and joined together for the very first time in one living union through their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look all the way through the New Testament, you study um, the Gospels and the uh, Epistles and the Pastoral Letters, you discover there are two emphases or descriptions of the church in the New Testament. And one of them is of the church as a body, as an organism, as a living union of all true believers in Christ. And it began, that universal church began with the day of Pentecost and the advent of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, following the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have a couple of verses that describe that on your verse sheet. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. If you skip down a few verses, you see this. Those who accepted his message, and it's talking about Peter, who has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Those who accepted his message and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, supposed to be of, uh, to breaking of the bread and to prayer. The second chapter of Acts, and Acts is a wonderful book. Go back sometime when you've got time and, and read through the book of Acts because it really does describe the birth of the church with the Holy Spirit coming to the upper room. That very day, 3,000 were added to the numbers for the very first time of the universal church, that living union of all true believers. And that living union of true believers continues today with each of us who accepts God's free gift of eternal life through our faith in Jesus Christ. I had an interesting experience when I became a believer at the age of 26. Church had never been a significant part of my life. I had never been a regular attender, not when I was a child and not as I, as a young adult living on my own. 
My family occasionally attended a small little church that happens to be on the corner of Birchman and, and Clover Lane, and, and we did that on Easter Sunday every now and then and randomly throughout the years. And sometimes I went to Sunday school with friends when I was a child growing up. And when I thought of church, I always thought of a building. I always thought of a building. And I always thought of it as a building where maybe it it was a facility that you needed to get married in. We all needed a building to get married in, and that was what a church was uh, to me. And... Um, and then I thought, well, it was, a, and the other thought that I had of it, it was, it was a place where you occasionally went when you needed to feel better about yourself. You know, I've been to church. I'm feeling, you know, I can't be that bad of a person. I've been to church. But overnight, when I became a believer, all of that changed. And I literally mean overnight. I trusted Christ late one night, about two in the morning by myself, uh, randomly after reading just a few short paragraphs about who the Savior really was. And when I woke up the next morning, I had two overwhelming urges. And one of them was to immediately go buy a Bible, which I did out of the little Baptist bookstore on the traffic circle. And the other one was to get to a church, to go to a church. Um, and I did that. And I, it was, I was hardly able to contain myself. I believe this was on a Monday. I was hardly able to contain myself till the following Sunday when I could find a church and go be a part of that. And neither of these things were of myself. In fact, I, looking back now, I realized that I couldn't have stopped myself. I was compelled to do both of these things. And it was actually a couple of years later when I'd finally read through that Bible that I had bought that day on the traffic circle when I discovered what had happened to me. I had had my own personal day of of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit had come to dwell inside me as a result of my realization that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior and Jesus was that Savior. And it was that Holy Spirit that compelled me to find other believers that I was now connected with in this body of Christ and join with. I did not go looking for a building. I went looking for the, the... organism, the living body of Christ that I was now a part of. So from Pentecost on, as each believer becomes saved through his faith in Jesus Christ, he or she becomes a member of that body of Christ, the universal church. Jesus actually talks about this purpose, this new revelation of God's in um, to his disciples before the crucifixion in Matthew 16, 18. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now the other emphasis that we see in the New Testament is on the local church, or the organized body that we all know of um, in today's age. And when we look at the teaching and the divine revelation God has given us on the local or the organized church in the New Testament, we still discover that it's only about the people. The book of Acts, which is the chronicle of the beginnings of the church, as we've already talked about, talks only about the people who first became the first members of the universal church. And it only talks about the people who worked hard to develop and support the beginnings of the local organized church. Paul wrote many letters to the churches that were first established. They're called the epistles, and they're in our Bible um, uh, as First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians and 
Philippians, Colossians, uh, Thessalonians. Those are letters Paul wrote to those very first churches. And Paul always makes it clear that it's about the people. In fact, Paul begins every letter simply by addressing the people. He doesn't write 3740 Birchman Avenue on there. It's not about a location. It's about the people. An example of his uh, doing that is in 1 Corinthians 1-2 on your sheet. This is Paul's address to the church. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul only talks about the people. And it's very interesting to me that, you know, back in the Old Testament, there are several times when God does give very specific instructions for building things. I mean, God is a great architect and a great carpenter. When Noah goes to build the ark. He doesn't just say, Noah, go build a little boat over there. Man, he lays it out, how long it is, how tall it is, how many rooms it would be. He gives specific instructions for building of the ark. And he does the exact same thing in Exodus 25 when he gives Moses elaborate instructions. Go back and read that too about how to read, build the tabernacle, which is going to be God's dwelling place for the nation of Israel. But there's nowhere in the New Testament do we have building plans for a physical church. And we saw the reason for that the last few weeks as Lynn taught. uh, And we saw those beautiful slides on the mountainside um, where Jesus taught and we sat at his feet as Lynn guided us through that. We saw the reason for that because clearly God's new dwelling place is in the hearts of his people. A wise New Testament church understands that truth. It is about the hearts of the people, and it's never about bricks and mortar of a building. And as much as we love this new sanctuary, and I do love this sanctuary, it's beautiful, and it allows us to enjoy being able to worship and to be together and to um, learn, to study the Bible. It's comfortable. We're not squeezed in together. We're not standing out there hoping that someone will get up and go to the bathroom and we can run in and take their place like we used to do in the old sanctuary. As much as we love this new facility and we know that God gave it to us and he's going to bless our use of it, this sanctuary is nothing without God's people. If we get up and leave today, it's not going to be anything but a building. It's not going to be anything but a building. Now, the good news is that even though God has not given us plans for a building, he hasn't left us alone to build his church, both the universal church and the local church. Lynn shared with us the last few weeks, as she shared with us, we learned many things about what our hearts, the the true dwelling place of God now should look like. Those are the plans for the New Testament church, our hearts. In addition to that, God also gives us instructions several places in the New Testament on what the local church should look like. Not what the building should look like, but what the organization of it is, what the values of the New Testament church is, what its mission is in the world today. And it also gives us several instructions on what the leadership of the New Testament local church should resemble. So that together following those directions, we can worship effectively. We can connect together in meaningful ways. We can grow so that our characters begin to look like the character of Christ. 
And we can share with the world that good news that we already know. And we can serve those who need to be served because that is Christ's example to us. Those kinds of things is what the church is meant to be and how those are the things that glorify God. Now we're going to move on to looking at this uh, short little letter from Paul to Titus. Uh, We studied it in your homework, and it's one of those places in the New Testament that we have the opportunity to take a peek at what um, the local organized church is supposed to look at. And as we do that, we're going to discover, as we go through the first few verses in Titus, our second big rock that's going to point our way. And that second big rock is a wise church places itself under Christ's divine authority. Titus Uh, 1 verses 1 through 4. Read that with me. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son and our common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You know, in ancient times, this was a common practice that in ancient times you put, uh, we sign our letters at the end in ancient times. They begin with their signature so that um, uh, the letters were often hand-delivered so it didn't have a return address on an envelope so you could know before you ripped it open. So because of that, Paul puts his name at the beginning. And He lays out here that what he's doing is writing to his friend Titus, and he's also writing to the new converts on the island of Crete. And he tells us right here at the first, he wants us to know that he has a right to speak. I have a much younger um, stepsister, Carrie, and she was almost three when my dad married her mom, and she was the baby of all of us. There were, you know, assorted sisters, and she was the baby, and um, unfortunately, I think we tortured her way too much, but um, one of the very first things she did, and it's kind of got to be the family joke now, is it hadn't been very long after um, my dad became her new dad, and he was one day instructing her and correcting her like dads have a way of doing, and as only an almost three-year-old can do, she kind of put her hand on her hip, and she stomped that little foot, and she said, you not the boss of me. And um, so we've teased her about that for the rest of her life, about you not the boss of me. And Paul knows right here that if young pastor is going to be, um, if the young pastor Titus is going to be effective in Crete with these new converts and new churches, that he has to give them reason not to say to Titus, you're not going to be the boss of me. Paul wants them to know that Titus is going to be the boss of them. So he begins establishing his right to be heard here by professing to be a servant of God. The Greek word that Paul uses here is doulos, which actually means literally slave. And Paul truly considers himself, which I think is is amazing, not just a servant, but a bond servant or a slave of God. And those people reading his letter understand that's what his meaning is. It's a title that Paul holds with humility and with legitimate pride. Moses was called a slave of God or a servant of God in the first chapter of Joshua. 
and many of the prophets in the Old Testament also referred to themselves as a slave of God or a servant of God. So Paul's trying to establish his credibility here for the new converts on Crete by placing himself firmly in the line with all the great men of God that have used that title and had that title used of them. But more important than his credibility and placing himself in that line along with the other slaves of God, we see that he calls himself an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is important. If the young pastor Titus is going to be effective with the new and very unorganized churches on the island of Crete, they're going to have to believe that his authority comes from a higher power because he has no authority. He's not... Um, been in the church long himself. He's a Gentile, and uncircum- he's not circumcised, and um, he's not very old. In this case, Titus's authority comes from Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And Paul's authority is also not of himself. Paul's authority comes straight from the Savior. In Paul's day, the title of apostle was given to those especially and personally selected by Christ. Paul's apostleship was unique, I hope you read about this in your homework and understood it. His was unique because he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples that become known as apostles. He wasn't even one of the ones that was selected to replace um, Judas after he died. Paul was specially selected by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Acts 9 on your verse sheet says, As he nears Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Before his calling, of course, uh, Paul's name was Saul. And from this moment on, on the road to Damascus, Paul considered himself an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one personally selected, one that had talked with the Savior, face to face. And although the word apostle, if you looked it up in a dictionary, the word apostle can have the simple meaning of messenger. But the term was most often used back in Paul's days as the meaning of a special messenger, kind of a type of ambassador, uh, one who spoke with authority not on his own. He was uh, an ambassador, a messenger of the sender. And so an apostle spoke with the authority of the sender. Um, In Paul's case, the sender is Jesus Christ, and he speaks with the authority of Christ. Now, Paul and Titus had been friends for a long time. They traveled together on several uh, missionary journeys. They were ministry partners. They were brothers in Christ. And we see in verse 4 that Titus calls... that. Paul calls Titus his true son in the faith, which probably means that he led Titus to Christ at some point in his earlier journeys. So Titus and Paul have a long-standing relationship. They've traveled together many places and ministered extensively together. In fact, if we looked over in 2 Corinthians, we'd discover that Titus is mentioned by Paul nine different times as he writes that second letter to the church at Corinth. So Paul is establishing his divine authority here, not just for Titus, because Titus truly understands who Paul is. He's really establishing his divine authority for um, the churches that Titus is going to be working with so that they would submit to Titus because he's submitting to Paul and Paul is submitting to Christ. You know, authority 
is an interesting issue for us, isn't it? Whenever the word authority comes up, we all begin to um, kind of sit up a little bit straighter and think, okay, what's coming here? The word authority um, has come out. Authority was an interesting issue not only for the new churches on Crete, and that's what Paul is talking about here, is authority that he has over the new churches on Crete, but authority is an interesting issue for the church today. Under whose authority does the universal church stand? Under whose authority do individual local churches stand? Under whose authority does Christ Chapel stand today? For Christ Chapel, I can say that we have an earthly authority at Christ Chapel, and that is our elder board and our pastors that are on the elder board. Um, But Christ Chapel and every other wise church should understand and accept that they are truly under the divine authority of the Savior himself. Ephesians 1.22 on your verse sheet says, And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And Colossians 1.18 says, And he, meaning Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So just as Paul establishes his divine authority to Titus and the churches on Crete, uh, we see that God has not left his church without authority either. God has established Christ as the supreme authority over his body, the church. A wise church accepts that authority as supreme. A wise church does nothing without the direction and blessing of that divine authority and places the divine authority of Christ above the authority and wisdom of earthly men as they lead the church. Now we're going to see our next big rock of truth also in these first four verses from uh, Paul. And the next big rock that we have on your outline is that a wise church understands that its mission and calling is to the salvation and sanctification of God's people. You know, we could really call this short letter to Titus an evangelistic letter, which has the ultimate purpose of preparing the church to be a more effective witness to the unbelievers on Crete. If you go back and look at anything about the history of the island of Crete, it was apparently a pretty wild place. It was one of those places um, in the world, uh, even though the Greeks and the Romans had had their influence on Crete, it was kind of an any-place-goes island. Um, Verses 1 through 3, Paul lays out for us the essence of an apostle's gospel and task. He doesn't leave us to guess what an apostle does here. He tells us that an apostle has the, um, the task of faith, knowledge of the truth, and the hope of eternal life. You see, Paul believed that he was a slave of God, that he was a bondservant, and that his work as a bondservant was making sure that the lost would be saved through faith, that those who did believe through faith would be sanctified or brought to godliness by knowledge of the truth, and that then there would be the hope of eternal life, which would encourage those who had believed and spur them on because they longed to see the risen Savior. The local church that uh, on Crete, which Paul is placing in Titus's hands, has that exact same mission and calling. I'm sure there were many things to be done on the island of Crete, But the mission and calling of the local church on the island of Crete was to these three things that 
Paul knows is his mission and calling. Christ Chapel today has the exact same mission and calling. And without this calling to the salvation and sanctification of God's people, our church and the church on Crete and any other church from that time to this time can find itself drifting this way and that. The local church that doesn't have this as its mission and calling finds itself taking on social issues. It finds itself simply dabbling in spiritual things, things that seem good to um, the people that are in leadership. The local church would find itself investing in popular and worldly causes, but neglecting the true gospel and the important mission of the church. In today's world, just like in Paul's day, there are so many things that need to be done in our world. Ladies, aren't there? There's so many good causes for people to champion. There are many important social issues to tackle, but there is only one gospel and only one mission for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6 on your sheet says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Colossians 1, 28 and 29, which is actually the mission statement for Christ Chapel, says, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Wise churches understand that their mission and calling is to the salvation and sanctification of God's people. And there are social issues that are so important in our world, and they may be real and valid, but they can never replace faith, knowledge of the truth, and the hope of eternity in the local church. So let's read on just a few more verses in Titus. 5 through 9 says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Paul has actually only spent a short time on the island of Crete with Titus. They traveled there. Paul was there for uh, just a matter of months, I believe. And then Paul goes on to do other important ministry things. But he's left Titus with a job to do, and it's a big job. And he tells us in verse 5 that he has left Titus for the purpose of providing leadership for that baby infant church that has sprung up all over the island of Crete. And his wisdom and direction to Titus is that he can begin to set things in order in the young churches by first establishing leadership for the church and appointing elders in every town. I think that says an important thing to us, that our leadership is important and we need to stop first and make sure our leadership is on solid ground in the church before we continue on with the rest of the organization in the church. 
And even though Paul has left Titus with uh, the work of appointing the elders in every town, he doesn't leave him high and dry. He doesn't just say, this is what you need to do, and I'll check with you later. He leaves him, first of all, with the apostolic authority that we've already talked about earlier, and he leaves him with a detailed list of the divine standards that elders and pastors in the church will need to possess. And we're going to see a little bit later in the next couple of weeks in Titus as Paul is going to prescribe a general uh, direction and organizational structure for the church in the next couple of chapters um, of Titus. But he doesn't really give a lot of specifics. He doesn't say, you need to open the doors at this time. You need to have everybody sit here and there. You need to have four services or one service or you need to... He doesn't give a lot of specifics. The details are going to be left to the local leaders to determine. And therefore, the quality and the character of the church's leaders are important. From your homework, you know that Paul also gives his other mentee, Timothy, um, a list of qualities for the leaders in 1 Timothy 3. Timothy, he's left Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. He's left Titus in charge of the church of Crete. He writes both of them encouraging and instructional letters, and he gives them both a list of divine qualities and, and characters for leaders. And if you know from your homework last night, you know that those lists matched up almost item for item. There were a little bit of semantics in there, but basically he gives the same direction. Paul gives Titus 17 character qualities that mark the lives of elders, and basically the same list exists that he gave. Uh, they cover the same essential qualities as in Timothy. And as we talk about these qualities, I want you to know um, that these are qualities upon which our elders and pastors at Christ Chapel are chosen. We have applied these words of Paul's written so many years ago to our own leadership boards here at Christ Chapel. They're not taken lightly, and um, every elder would tell you that. He holds firmly to these and, and that he agrees with these. The first three qualities that Paul mentions are social and domestic qualities. He says that an elder has to be blameless, a faithful husband, and a family leader. He has to have his own children and household under control. Blameless refers here to being a man who is under above reproach. It means having nothing in one's conduct upon which someone could ground a charge or an accusation. In fact, in the legal system of Paul's day, uh, if you were determined to be blameless, you couldn't even have a charge brought against you, much less be tried for the crime. There would be no indictment if you were considered a blameless man, regardless of what the evidence was to the um, different, you could not be charged or tried. And Paul, we have to know here, is not talking about sinless perfection, but rather he's talking about the leaders of Christ's church must have no sinful issues in their lives which could call into question their righteousness or the righteousness of Christ's church. As leaders, their actions are always going to be a reflection, not just of themselves and their own personal character, but as leaders, their reflection are going to be, they're going to reflect upon the character of the church and ultimately upon God's character. Next, Paul uses the phrase, the husband of but one wife. That's an interesting little phrase, isn't it? And I have to tell you that um, there's a whole lot written about this little phrase, husband of but one wife, in the commentaries. Literally, the Greek phrase reads, a one-woman husband. Um, 
which I think is interesting, a one-woman husband. The question for us that we have to answer when we look at scriptures and interpretations and when we see these guidelines is um, how strict of a standard is Paul erecting for elders here? And I think the simplest way to interpret this may be to use a big circle, which uh, would encompass every interpretation that we could uh, come up with for this one-woman husband, and it would be concentric circles. There would be an outside circle that um, held a broad interpretation of what this meant, and then an inside circle which held a little bit narrow interpretation, and then there'd be another center circle which would have the most conservative interpretation. The most broad interpretation or that outside circle of Paul's meaning here is that Paul is putting polygamy and promiscuity off limits for the leaders of the church. Certainly we would agree with that because the entire New Testament teaches that polygamy and promiscuity are off limits for every believer. And since leaders would be fall in that category of every believer, we could agree that Paul is definitely saying promiscuity and polygamy is off limits for the leaders of the church. The second ring... Um, we can interpret that as Paul is saying that an elder must be devoted solely to his wife with an inward and outward purity and that that would be the standard for um, uh, a husband of one wife. The final circle of interpretation is the most literal and it's the most conservative and it prohibits elders from being remarried from for any reason. So if an elder had had a previous marriage, no matter what the reason, and he's now married to another wife, that inner circle would prohibit his remarriage for any reason. Christ Chapel uh, most uh, fits uh, most likely into that small inner circle and the literal conservative interpretation of that. Certainly we hold to the broad. There's no... uh, Uh, polygamy or promiscuity, certainly we would hold also to the fact that we want our elders to um, be faithful husbands with an inward and an outward devotion to their wives. And we also hold that we want our elders to not be remarried for any reason. Paul's next qualification on the list is family leadership. And the principle of family leadership, and the reason Paul includes it here in a list for elders, comes from the conviction that a man who struggles in the leadership of his own family, morally and spiritually, may well struggle as he leads a church family or a large congregation of people. And along with that, Paul believes that if you have difficulties in your immediate family, if you have unbelieving or rebellious children, that they can undermine the leadership credibility of any godly man. Um, so that's the reason there's a, a family leadership in with the elder qualifications. So following the social and domestic qualifications, Paul gives us five vices that must not be found in an elder and seven virtues that should. Um, He switches here from using the words elder to using the words overseer. The two words are actually interchangeable. They're just slightly different Greek words, but um, they actually stand, they refer, even though they're slightly different Greek words and they're uh, translated a little differently in your scriptures, they refer to the same church office. And that is what we're talking about here, is the official church office of pastor-elder. Because Paul repeats the quality of blamelessness in verse 6, he repeats it because of its importance. An overseer of the church, whether it's a pastor or an elder, causes damage to the reputation of God when his personal reputation is not above reproach. 
And you know, ladies, we see examples of this every single day on the front page of the news of the uh, newspapers or on the internet. We see a church leader that makes national headlines uh, with a moral failing, and it is God's reputation every time. It, God's reputation every time is being damaged by their lack of blamelessness. Paul moves on to the five negative characteristics or things that should never be present in an elder or an overseer in the church, and those things are overbearing, quick-tempered, given to much wine or drunkenness, violent, and pursuing dishonest gain. And these are contrasted by Paul with the positive qualities that should be sought in our leaders, and those are hospitable, loving what is good, being self-controlled and sensible, upright, holy, and disciplined. And these lists of positive and negative qualities to me are convincing proof that God calls our pastors and elders to an office in the church where they need to be godly men who lead the church not by their might, not by their personal power, but by their exemplary and extraordinary lives. Our example of godly character is, of course, from Christ himself, and it's for his body that we should expect nothing less than exemplary and extraordinary lives from our church leaders. Finally, in verse 9, Paul tells us that our elders and overseers in the church have to not only meet moral and spiritual standards in their personal lives, but they've also got to be reliable men where God's word is concerned. According to Paul, an elder is a conservator of the truth, one who has to understand it, not just have a Bible on the shelf that gathers dust that they pick up to put under their arm on Sunday morning so everyone will see them with it. They have to be one who understands it. They have to hold to it. They have to encourage others by teaching it. And they have to use the word of God to refute opposition to our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.15 on your sheet says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. You know, one of the blessings of only having sons, I have three sons and um, uh, growing up, now I have two daughter-in-laws, but um, there was a time when it was only boys. One of the blessings was they never borrowed my stuff. They didn't, um, uh, there was never anything out of my closet. They didn't wear my shoes or take my purses. They didn't like my candles. They, none of that stuff. They never barred my stuff. One of the uh, negatives for my sweet husband, Billy, is they barred his tools all the time. And one of the reasons they did is he's very handy with his hands and he loves tools and has a lot of tools and he taught all of our boys, how to correctly use the tools that are in his workshop. Now, two days ago, he was looking for his soldering iron, and he has a huge suspicion that our youngest son has absconded with his soldering iron. He couldn't find it anywhere. And um, I thought, who knows how to use a soldering iron? I mean, do any of y'all know how to use a soldering iron? No, absolutely not. Oh, Nancy does. That's true. But... um, Anyway, I thought, oh my gosh, he, you've taught him to use a soldering iron so much that he's stolen it and taken it with him, you know, to the, Alabama. And that's exactly what our elders need to be. They need to be like workmen that understand the word of truth so well that they use it appropriately and correctly in the leadership of the church. 
Paul expects leaders in the church, particularly elders and pastors, to be unwaveringly loyal to the scriptures, to be like workmen that understand it and use it correctly, applying it to their own lives so that their characters can be molded by it. And it's the word of God that's going to make godly men out of our elders and our leaders, that they will live up to God's divine standards because they know it from the word of God. And Paul expects that they will use the word to encourage and to rebuke and to uphold the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For today's church, Paul's divine standards for leadership are an especially crucial truth. They should not be lowered, they cannot be selectively applied, and they should never be disregarded. It's a compromise of God's standards for Christ's church if we satisfy our personal preferences when we choose our leadership. When we say, you know, maybe... These standards don't fit that particular guy, but we really want him to be a leader. It's a compromise of God's standards for the church when we begin to use contemporary social standards to choose our leaders. The world thinks this is all right, so why doesn't the church adopt it? Our main application today from Paul's teaching and instruction is that a wise church does not put buildings before the hearts of its people. A wise church does not create its own authority according to the whims of the world. A wise church never replaces salvation and sanctification as its mission. And a wise church does not choose its leaders by the world's contemporary social standards because a wise church is built solely on the truth of God's word. A wise church understands what the psalmist says in 119.105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be a wise church, and we ask your continued blessing and leadership and on our and direction on our leaders. Lord, I ask that you would continue to anoint our elders and our pastors with your spirit, that they would lead us in the path of righteousness for your namesake. Father, I pray that this would be a church that stands on the authority and the word of God. And I thank you that um, our history uh, seems to support that. I thank you for these women, for their willingness to commit and to be here today. I thank you for the truth, which is um, dear to all of us. Teach us. Let us be wise women who become wise disciples and are part of a wise church. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.